0: If you have a Bible, please take it and turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter five, and we will be looking at um, Acts five, beginning in verse twelve through the end of the chapter. So a larger uh, section of the book of Acts, um, Acts twelve, Acts five, twelve to forty-two. The following catchphrase has been credited to sportscaster Dan Patrick. He said many times, you can't stop him, you can only hope to contain him. Uh, He would say this when recapping some sports event when maybe a running back was plowing over everyone. You can't stop him, you can only hope to contain him. It describes what happens when a particular athlete in a particular moment seems to be completely unbeatable, unstoppable. It's the moment that, as we said in the 90s, when they are on fire. I don't think people say that anymore. Now we say they go into beast mode. Is that correct, CJ? They've gone into beast mode. Um, it's a wisely used phrase. You can't stop him. You can only hope to contain him. And it's been translated out of the realm of sports. And in my house, uh, we use this. My My children are at their grandparents. And when it comes to grandma and grandpa spoiling my children, You can't stop them. You can only hope to contain them. Um, In the book of Acts, as the church begins to sort of hit its stride, opposition arises both from without and from within. And this opposition, fueled by Satan and by the pride of men and women, seeks to stop the church. But those who oppose the church soon find out that you can't stop God's church. You can only hope to contain it. And even that hope, when God's Spirit is truly at work, is no hope at all. But my question is, why is that? Why is it that the church was so unstoppable in these early days? And what about us as a church and as individuals would make us unstoppable? How could we live and minister in a way that is unstoppable? Sadly, sometimes it would seem that anything can stop us. And that there's nothing really to contain. Um, We can begin to feel like there's no power amongst us. That we're not pushing forward in any significant way in the mission of the church that Christ has given us. That the opposition appears to be winning. But for instance, in your life this week, as opposition arose from without and from within, how did you fare? Very often... We can be very discouraged. We can feel like we're constantly giving in to the world, the flesh, and the devil, that we are stopped and that we are contained. So what was it about the church in these early days that caused it to stand against opposition? And not just to stand against opposition, but to grow through it. And how can that be true of your life? And how can that be true of my life? And how can that be true of our, of our church? That's the question I want us to ask this afternoon. And so rather than a big idea, I want us to contemplate a big question. And I'll attempt to answer it, at least in part, from our text this afternoon. And the question is this. Why does Christianity endure and even thrive in the midst of opposition? Why does Christianity endure and even thrive in the midst of opposition? Because it does here in this text, why is that though that's what happens here, and by God's grace and through his power, we as a church and we as followers of Jesus can also endure and not just endure but we can we can thrive, we can grow in the midst of opposition in the midst of suffering, but how let's read our text, and then we're going to walk through this account and provide answers at the end, so just so you know we're going to read it's a longer section of scripture. We'll read, we'll walk through the passage, and at the very end, I'll give you five answers, as it were, to this question. But let's look at the text. I was thinking that this is a longer text, so I know, kids, you can listen to this and and hear these words and see what surprises you. And maybe as you hear these words, I think there's some funny, amusing things in here, some things that are that kind of make me laugh a little bit. So as we read through this passage, maybe you can see what's surprising, what amazes you, and maybe even what's a little funny. Acts chapter 5, and I'll begin in verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days Theodos rose up, claiming to be a somebody, and a number of men, about four hundred, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him Judas the Galilean rose up, And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. our text last week told us that the cumulative effect of Ananias and Sapphira's death on the church and on the surrounding community was a sense of fear, a feeling of awe and amazement, but also probably some apprehension about not simply who this group of believers was, but also who this Jesus that they were worshiping was. The church was still a place that was filled with great grace, but there was also this growing respect and awe for the believers regarding who they were and, and who Jesus was. And here, immediately following the death of Ananias and Sapphira, Luke gives us another one of his summary statements regarding the early church. The first one is in chapter two, uh, which focused on the devotion to the their devotion to the apostles' teaching and to one another after the the day of Pentecost and when people were gathered in. The second summary statement we saw last week in chapter 4, and it highlighted the generosity of the church, how people were selling everything and giving to one another. And this one here in chapter 5, verses 12 through 16, emphasizes a few things, but it emphasizes in particular the miracles and the healings that were happening in the early church. As you read this summary, the picture that, that you get of what happened what's happening in Jerusalem might look a little something like this there's this group of probably 15 to 20,000 believers meaning people who had come to believe in the message of the apostles concerning Jesus that he was the Lord and Messiah and they're all gathered together uh, given that that large and this growing number of people it's obvious that the the presence and the influence of the followers of Jesus is steadily growing in the city of Jerusalem. It was exponentially growing. We we might pause and imagine what a group that large that arose that quickly in our own city, what that would be like. The kind of influence that would slowly come up and the attention that that would draw. 15 to 20,000 people in a matter of of weeks all of a sudden are together and have all things in common and everything that it says here, miracles are happening. And Eventually they'd be on the local news and we'd all be asking questions about who these people are and developing opinions about it. And that's what was surely happening in Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, these believers, we are told, were gathering together regularly in a spot in the temple called Solomon's Portico. Uh, You may remember that that's the place where um, Peter and John had explained to the crowds what happened to the lame man, that he was healed in the name of Jesus. That's where everyone gathered after that miracle. Um, It probably wasn't large enough to hold everyone at once, But it may have slowly just sort of become the place where the early church was known to congregate. This is where the followers of Jesus go. They're all hanging out in Solomon's porch. And as they were gathering each day in Solomon's porch, there was this steady stream of signs and wonders happening at the hands of the apostles. And these miracles, this was not, these were not anomalies, but the text says that they were regularly happening. There were regular miracles, regular signs. That were happening. So this is the early church. It's this large and growing group primarily and almost exclusively probably of Jewish men and women who have believed that Jesus is the Messiah and who are now led by the apostles, committed to the teaching of the apostles, loving one another, sharing everything they own and constantly witnessing miracles. These signs and wonders probably combined with the the recent events surrounding the death of Ananias and Sapphira had the the effect of both keeping some people away, but also of drawing some people in. The miracles and the death of Ananias and Sapphira repelled some people and attracted others. We see both of these things in verses 13 and 14. Look, Look there. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Now, there's multiple ways to understand these verses. Trevor and I had a good discussion about it last week, and I I think we disagree. And that's okay, uh, because it's it's not a major point of, of doctrine. One way to understand this is that the rest refers to those who were added to the church And the them refers to the apostles. So none of the the people in the church dared to join with the apostles, but the apostles were held in high esteem. They were set apart, and no one was trying to be made equal with them. I think that's one way to understand it, a very valid way to understand it. I take a different understanding of it. I think that what's happening here is that there's two different groups of people in Jerusalem, those who were attracted to the church and those who were wary of it. So the rest would refer to the people in the city and the them would be the believers in general. So none of the rest of the this group of people in the city dared to join them, but they held them in high esteem. I take that in part because of the contrast with verse 14. And if that's right, then the group in verse 13 seems to be those who were skeptical or possibly a bit nervous about all these Jesus people. Some may have been hesitant to, to join them after hearing about this couple that was struck dead because of their hypocrisy. That would be a pretty big deal. Others may have been skeptical or even scared of the signs and the wonders that were happening, or they may have been hesitant, hesitant to be associated with this group of people who were formerly diseased and possessed. Others probably were committed to the to the Jewish order, and they saw this group as an up uprising as something that was against the established order and still we're told that despite these varied opinions the church was well well respected by by everyone and some people did more than just respect the believers they recognized god's power and the truth of the message that was in the early church and so we find it says that more than ever believers were added to the lord luke had been reporting attendance statistics But here, he doesn't even venture a guess at a number anymore. It's, it's gotten totally out of hand. He just says that many were believing more than ever, more than, more than could be counted at this point. It's just growing. Many were believing and many were seeking healing. Wherever the apostles went, especially Peter is, is pointed out, there were, they were met by people who were sick or who were possessed. And so we find that the apostles are continuing the ministry of their master to the least of these. His power was on them. His spirit of life and love was in them. It was in their hands. It was even, it seems, in Peter's shadow. Peter's shadow had some sort of healing effect on people. Imagine that. As we think about how this stuff, how, how everything that was happening in the church both repelled and attracted people, just a thought, I think it's interesting to note that what attracted some people to faith in Christ and his power was the same thing that repelled others from trusting in him and joining this community. It, it reminds me, it makes me just pause and say that as a church, we should be hospitable and we should be careful uh, in thinking through um, how people in our city view us as the people of God gathered in a particular place. But we should also be careful of thinking that we know what's going to attract people to the gospel or to our church um, and what will repel them. We should not imagine that we know exactly what it is that's going to draw God's children into his flock. The Lord knows who are his. And as we faithfully proclaim the gospel, as we walk in his ways, as we love one another, as we sacrifice for one another, as we submit to the work of the spirit, he's going to add people to his church and he will attract people to His church, and some people will be repelled no matter what's happening in the church. Can you imagine if we had a continuous stream of miracles happening in this church? We think, well, that would be the secret. Everyone would show up then, right? Some people that would say, there's a bunch of miracles happening there. I'm definitely not going there. We don't know what draws God's children in, and so we should be careful, but just to be faithful in the ministry that God gives us. As we think about these people who are repelled, by what was happening within the church. We're led into this account of, of verses 17 through 42. So the, the church is growing under the teaching and the power of the apostles and the response of the chief priests and the council uh, who are the Jewish leaders of that day there in Jerusalem, the response was to arrest, not just Peter and John this time, but they arrested all of the apostles. Can you imagine? They all got thrown in jail. This was certainly because they had not listened to the previous warning, which was this injunction given by the authorities in chapter 4, which was, you are not supposed to teach anymore in the name of Jesus. And you remember they said, well, we're going to anyways. So they knew they weren't going to listen to it, but they hadn't listened to it. And so they throw them in prison to maybe quiet them for at least a little bit. But Luke also tells us that they arrested them because they were jealous. Verse 17 says they were filled with jealousy. Jealous of what? The text doesn't outright say, but we can try to connect the dots. Those who were trusting in Jesus were more than likely exclusively Jewish at this point. Uh, Those who were, um, they, they were coming to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And as they were joining this group, they're starting to submit to the authority no longer of the the chief priests necessarily, but they're, now they're submitting to the authority of the apostles rather than the, the Jewish authorities. And so I'm sure they were jealous of their shrinking power. I'm sure they were jealous of the influence that the, the church was having in the city. They're jealous of the number of people that are following the apostles and the excitement that's building around them. They were probably also jealous of all these visible displays of power and the apostle, that the apostles are performing. And all in all, this this growing group starts to look like a real problem. And this jealousy drives them to arrest the apostles and put them in public prison. Isn't it interesting to read Daniel 6 like we did and to see that jealousy is probably a large part of the same reason why those guys went after Daniel. They were jealous of the way that God was blessing him. Of course, nothing can halt the spread of God good, God's good news, right? You can try to stop it, but you can only hope to contain it in a prison cell for a little while. And to that end, we find this very understated miracle in verses 19 through 21. Something amazing happens, but there's just such sparse language in verses 19 through 21 about how this angel showed up at the prison in the middle of the night and released all of the apostles unbeknownst to the guards. It's just sort of an afterthought. It feels like in the text. I I think that's, in part because the emphasis is not on the jailbreak, but the emphasis is on the fact that the angel tells the apostles to go back into the temple and to keep speaking the words of life, the good news of Jesus to the people. They had been arrested, why? For teaching. And now the angel releases them so that they can continue teaching. Their response to this is seen in verse 21. They entered the temple as soon as they could at daybreak, the text says, and they obeyed God's word by proclaiming God's word to everyone who gathered. They hardly missed a beat. It was like they just had another place to sleep for that night. They woke up and they went back to the temple and did the same thing. And it's at this point to me that the story gets a little humorous. I think if I was directing Hacks, the movie, this would be a fun scene to direct. And I think there'd be a little bit of humor here. Because we find that the religious leaders have gathered together the day after arresting the apostles, and now they're ready to to deal with it. Maybe they think that a night in this jail cell will have changed the minds of the apostles about disobeying orders. But when they send people, the the people that are sent arrive at the jail to retrieve the apostles. The doors are all locked, all the guards are in place, and there's no prisoners. <laughs> all the apostles are gone. This is quickly reported back to the religious leaders, which leads to everyone being completely confused. They have no idea what's going on, but they're not confused for long because someone, it doesn't really even say who, it just says someone showed up and said, hey, you know, those guys that you arrested for teaching about Jesus in the temple, they're in the temple teaching about Jesus. They're doing the exact same thing now. They're, they've been released. And to add insult to injury, I find it interesting in verse 26, the captain of the guard with the officers went and brought them, not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And so now they not only have to go back and, and get them again, but they couldn't arrest them like they did before because they were scared that the people were going to stone them. They had to sort of ask them gently, would you guys please come back? And they couldn't apply any force to bring them back. Um, before the council i find the humor of that account it gives it gives me confidence i think it helps us to see the idea that anything including prison bar the the thought that's that prison bars could stop god's people from speaking his truth is laughable it's funny to think that you could lock up the apostles and that will stop god's plan and god's good news so the apostles are brought back before the council. The leaders uh, then bring up two issues. Here's their their beef with the apostles. The first one is that the apostles have been ordered to not speak in this name, the name of Jesus, which they won't even say. But the apostles have not obeyed that command. In fact, they have filled Jerusalem with this teaching about Jesus. And even regions from beyond Jerusalem are now coming into the city, seeking out the apostles. And the second thing regarding Jesus who again they don't name, they they say that the apostles are trying to hold them accountable for Jesus' death. They're trying to lay Jesus' blood on their account. Regarding that second issue, you can understand why they feel this way, because whenever Peter talks about Jesus, whenever he's preaching, you know how he talks about Jesus. He says, this Jesus, who you crucified. I mean, he just keeps saying that over and over again. And in fact, they've just said, hey, you keep trying to lay the blame on us and then when peter responds in verse 30 he says the god of our fathers raised jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree he says the exact same thing to them and they did i think many if not most of the people in this council were there the friday that jesus was condemned to die and you remember that pilate washed his hands and said i'm not i don't want any of the guilt of this man on my hands And do you remember what the people said? They cried out, his blood be on us and on our children. They claimed responsibility that day. They were responsible for the blood of Jesus. And not just them, but truly we all are responsible for the death of Jesus, whether we were there or not, because the death of Jesus is for your sin and for my sin. And if we get a little squeamish about that accusation, it's because we don't, want to feel guilty for something like that, just as these leaders didn't want to feel guilty. But in fact, until we look at the cross and see Jesus dying and confess that it was because of our sins that he died, that he was paying the death penalty that we owed because of our rebellion and sin, that the gruesomeness of the cross reveals the ugliness of my heart, until we recognize that, then we will never know his forgiveness we'll just do what these leaders did. We'll try to justify ourselves. We'll try to pass the blame on to someone else or we'll get angry when someone says that we've done something wrong. But if we will admit our sin and if we will acknowledge that our sin brings death and even is the reason that Jesus died, then we will find ourselves on the path towards salvation. Regarding the other accusation, namely that the the apostles had not listened to the religious leader's instruction to keep quiet, they give the same response that they did before, which is, we must obey God rather than men. God in Christ had told them to preach the gospel. And God through the angel had just told them to get back into the temple and to preach the crowds there. And so they are listening to God. They're not listening to these authorities. They were witnesses to all that Jesus said and did, and so they felt that they had to keep testifying. They had to keep witnessing to what they had seen and heard and knew to be true. This truth that if we would not only acknowledge our sin, but if we would repent of our sin, turn from it, and trust that Jesus has died for our sins and been raised to make us right with God, then we will be forgiven and will be given the gift of the Holy Spirit. As I look at that and I consider all the pressure that was around the apostles and everything that they seemingly had to lose in this moment, I'm so impressed, I'm so encouraged and heartened by the response of Peter and by these other disciples. But the religious leaders had the exact opposite response. They were not like the people on the day of Pentecost who heard the words of Peter And the text tells us they were cut to the heart and they humbly said, what do we need to do to be saved? No, these guys heard the words of Peter, these words of life, and rather than being cut to the heart, they were enraged, it says, and they wanted to kill them. And they probably would have, except for Gamaliel. Gamaliel, this interesting guy, probably used by God in this circumstance. He shows up in verse 34. He is described here as a a Pharisee, so a man committed to keeping the law, as well as a teacher of that law, and a man that was held in honor by everyone. He's a well-respected man. He's a well-respected teacher, a keeper of the law. And in fact, we learn in Acts 22 that Paul was taught by Gamaliel. Paul was a student of this guy. He stands up, and he asks that the apostles be taken out of the room for a moment so they can kind of talk frankly amongst each other. And he begins, ironically, in the same way that Peter did on the day of Pentecost, he uses those words, men of Israel. I'm not sure how much is there, but I I think it's interesting that they wouldn't listen to Peter when he preached, but they listened to Gamaliel. He then describes two examples from recent history of men who had sought to gain a following and rebel against the established authorities of the Jewish faith. The first guy is Theodos, who was a nobody, who claimed to be a somebody, but when he was killed, everybody who followed him scattered. And Judas, in a similar way, had a following until he died, and all of his followers were scattered. So two uprisings, both of them eventually fizzing out, fizzling out with the death of their leader. And so too, says Gamaliel, these followers of Jesus should be left alone because eventually they're going to fall apart like everyone else. That is what happens to all such man-made rebellions and revolts and religion, he says. But Amelio also wisely says that if this thing were somehow of God, then to oppose it would be to oppose God, which is obviously never a good idea. So in light of this, he recommends a hands-off approach. He just says, leave him alone. Just let it die. And the leaders agree to this, sort of. They agree to it after they beat all of the apostles and again say, no more talking about The name of Jesus anymore. Gamaliel's advice seems really wise. And it seemed really wise to those who heard him. But, we kinda have the inside scoop, don't we? Because unlike Theodos, Jesus was not a nobody who claimed to be a somebody. Jesus was the Son of God. And unlike both of these guys, Jesus didn't stay dead. And here we start to see the evidence come together to answer our big question. Why does Christianity endure and even thrive in the midst of opposition? Why does Christianity endure and even thrive in the midst of opposition? I want to offer five answers from this text. Fairly quickly. First, we have God as our final authority. Why does Christianity endure and even thrive in the midst of opposition? Because we have God as our final authority. That's not to say that we are rebels against all earthly authorities. Romans 13, 1 Peter 2 help us to think through what it looks like to relate to governing authorities that are placed there by God. But we find here and we find throughout the book of Acts that the commands of God and the commission of Jesus always take precedence when they are in conflict with the commands of earthly authorities. And because of that, those who would seek to use their authority to undermine the commands of Jesus will fail. Christianity cannot and it will not be crushed by earthly authorities because God is our final authority. And if God is our final authority, then we will always listen to him, even when earthly authorities try to stop us from doing what he's called us to do. Really closely related to this uh, submission to God as our final authority is the idea of proclaiming the gospel. And so the second reason that our faith endures through opposition is we have a message of eternally good news. Why does Christianity endure and even thrive in the midst of opposition? Because we have a message of eternally good news. I think the threat that is brought out in this passage is is that the gospel is going to be shut up in prison and possibly killed through the killing of the apostles, that the message is going to stop. It's not going to go forward. It's not going to get to the ends of the earth like it's supposed to. But we find at the end of the passage, how's it end? Verse 42, "...and every day in the temple and from house to house they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus." the threat to the message, to the squashing of the gospel comes. But the disciples would not stop preaching. They obeyed God and they obeyed the angel. They didn't obey men. And they did so not only because they knew that their message was true and not only because they were witnesses to it, but because it was a message of life. That's what the angel calls it in verse 20, to preach this these wor- the words of this life. And Peter, he tells those authorities, he says that their message is about forgiveness of sins and the power of the Spirit in all who would believe. The message that we have is eternally good for all people who will repent and believe. And if we grasp that, then no opposition or difficulty would ever keep us from proclaiming it. We have the words of eternal life that cannot be kept secret and cannot be suppressed the gospel is characterized in a lot of different ways but however the gospel is characterized by our friends and by our neighbors or even by the media we know that it is eternally good news don't be ashamed of the gospel it is the power of god for salvation to everyone who believes christianity they can't be squashed because this news is too good it's eternally good And we can't help but speak it. Why does Christianity endure and even thrive in the midst of opposition? Because we have God as our final authority. We have a message of eternally good news. We have a unique understanding of suffering. We have a unique understanding of suffering. Punishment, like the beatings that the apostles received in verse 40, is intended to make people obey punishment brings pain and it brings sorrow and it brings humiliation and it does it with the goal that those who are punished will stop doing what they're punished for because they don't want to experience pain and sorrow and humiliation again but how did the disciples respond to suffering by rejoicing By giving thanks that they could walk in the steps of Jesus by suffering as he did. It's really hard to stop someone through um, punishment if they rejoice when it comes. Can you imagine being a parent to a child? And every time you came up with a punishment, they were happy with whatever that punishment was. You could never stop them from doing anything. Persecution and difficulty cause those other guys and their followers to scatter. But here it causes the believers to rejoice and to be emboldened because it means, they look at that and they say, suffering, it must mean that we're following Jesus. We must be doing something right because we're suffering like Jesus did. Christianity endures and it even thrives through suffering because we follow a master who has suffered himself and he's called us to suffer with him. We've said it so many times. Jesus never tells us to go somewhere. He always says, follow me. And we follow him into suffering. He told us from the beginning that suffering would come and that our suffering is a way to share with him and to grow in his likeness. Pain and persecution doesn't crush us as individuals or as a church. Rather, it builds us. It can strengthen us. What is meant to defeat us makes us stronger. Why does Christianity endure and even thrive in the midst of opposition? Because we have this unique understanding of suffering because of who Jesus is. Tied to this, a fourth reason that Christianity endures is because we have the hope of the resurrection. We have the hope of the resurrection. You remember that when Jesus died, as predicted, by Jesus himself, the disciples did the exact same thing that the followers of Theodos and that the followers of Judas of the Galilean did. They scattered. Everyone scattered. But here's the thing. Unlike those two guys, Theodos and Judas, Jesus came back from the dead. And everyone who had scattered is now brought back together. And, and they're even now emboldened to follow Christ and to proclaim the gospel. Why? Because by Jesus coming back from the dead, he shows that the, the, that he has power over death itself and that we too, if we trust in him, will be raised to life even if we die. Being, not having to worry about death is a pretty amazing thing. Uh, my kids recently discovered Minecraft, I think they're behind the times, but they figured it out. And, and they found a thing on there called creative mode, which from what I gather when Jude tells me all about it, is it, it means they can't die. So they can do whatever they want. They can try everything and they have no fear of falling or of failing because they can't die. So they just do whatever they want. And the hope of the resurrection has the effect of making the follower of Jesus invincible. Because what's the worst thing that that someone can do to us as a Christian? Kill us? They can't ultimately kill us. They can kill the body, but they can't kill the soul. It just means if we die that we are sent to Jesus' side. How do you How do you crush a people? How do you squash a religion that's filled with people that have that kind of hope? That that death can't, is not the final word in our lives. The answer is, you can't. You can't stop them. You can only hope to contain them. And that hope is a far off hope. Why does Christianity endure and even thrive in the midst of opposition? It, It does it because we have God as our final authority. We have a message of eternally good news. We have this unique understanding of what suffering is. We have the hope of the resurrection. And what's all through the pages of Acts is we have the abiding presence and power of the Spirit. We have the abiding presence and power of the Spirit. God himself in each of us, not just Jesus in one specific place, the Spirit of Christ in every true believer. In the end, the disciples and all of us would have no hope of enduring, of proclaiming the good news amidst opposition, of of rejoicing in suffering, of facing death without fear. We would have no hope of doing any, any of that apart from the indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit. But we do have the Spirit. And as Peter says, In verse 32, the Spirit has been given to those who obey Christ, who believe in Him. And His abiding presence remains in us and His power works through us so that nothing can stop us. And the presence and the power of the Spirit causes us as individuals and as the church to endure. And not just endure, but even thrive in the midst of opposition Brothers and sisters, in the midst of a world that is hostile to the gospel and in the face of enemies that will come from without and from within who would seek to crush us, we can endure. And not just endure, but we can thrive, submitting to God as our final authority with the message of the eternal hope of the gospel on our lips, with joy in suffering, with hope in the face of death, all through the power of the Spirit of Jesus Living and abiding in us. Because of what God, because of what God has done for us in Christ, the church is truly unstoppable. It's uncontainable. And it will be that for all eternity. All the way until the day that the earth is filled with the knowledge as the waters cover the sea.